Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And Anson, when was the first time you had heard of the Hmong? Um, that would have been, I guess, when I when I got to know Sharon. Um, I, I don't think I'd ever heard that term before. Obviously, didn't know how to spell it. Uh, I was not aware of the, the history, our history, Vietnam, none of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't either. Uh, I met Sharon, and she has a whole prepared spiel because nobody, very few people know who the Hmong are. And I will save her from having to do that spiel again. And I will say, without sounding too mechanical, the Hmong are an indigenous ethnic minority that lives in southern China along the northern border of Laos, Thailand, Myanmar, mountain folk, essentially. And a lot of them are in America now because before the Vietnam War, there was the secret war, which was mostly in Laos, and that consisted of the CIA training locals to fight the communists. And the locals that we picked and trained were the Hmong because they lived in a border region, so they made convenient allies. And there was a tacit agreement that if we lost the war, that they can come live with us. And, well, we all know how that went. (laughs) So now there are a lot among here, mostly concentrated in Minnesota, uh, Merced, California. There's, uh, you know, pockets here and there, Fresno. Yeah. Um, And there's a pocket down in uh, North Carolina, uh, down in the mountains. There's a little bit everywhere. But I would say Minnesota and Fresno are are the real big centers. And, you know, as a minority, they've always had a little bit of trouble getting their story out there. Although there was an attempt back in 2008, a little film called Gran Torino. Get off my lawn. You better watch your back. Thank you. Probably one of the first commercial films that tried to bring the Monk story to the big screen. Uh, But, you know, it was directed and written by white people. And so... It got a lot of important details wrong. You know, in the end, uh, the Hmong didn't really own that story. They didn't really get to tell their story their way. But it was Dua's first big role. Uh, He played Spider in Gran Torino, uh, the bad guy, the villain. That's my little cousin over there. Sure, that's your cousin, man? Fuck yeah, that's my little cousin. You tight with anybody? And he gets to be one of the only, maybe the first, maybe the only, certainly one of the very few actors to get to pretend kill Clint Eastwood, which is pretty cool. So Dua has already accomplished a lot. He has killed Clint Eastwood and he has brought a completely authentically Hmong film to the big screen. and But that was all a little bit later. Uh, we first met Dua back in 2003 or so when Sharon was starting the Hmong NYC Facebook group and immediately found this kid, Dua Moa, and they started the group together and they kind of planted the seed that's grown into a community that's now... You know, I don't even know how many there are. There might might be 50 at least. But it used to be that we would have these gatherings here in my apartment. Sharon would host. And at first it was like four people, you know, and then it was eight and then it was 12 and then it was 20. And then it was, oh, we need to rent a community center now. We can't. (laughs) I kind of got to witness this happen from the outside. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, And uh, so it's not unusual to have a large gathering of Hmong uh, people in our apartment. But a few months ago, we had a very special occasion and a very special reason to have such a gathering, which is that Dua, uh, who's an actor, uh, wrote a script years ago called The Harvest. It's semi-autobiographical. And he allowed us to have a little uh, sneak peek, a little uh, early screening of his film The Harvest here in the apartment. And it was just, it was it was beautiful to play it to a group of people who have never seen their story on the screen like that before, and just the the excitement 
and pride that they had after that film was over. Well, you can hear it here. And this gathering is happening in our apartment because Sharon, my wife, who is Hmong, invited everyone over to have this screening. And she very graciously decided to uh, take over hosting duties on this episode. So what you're about to hear is Sharon in conversation with Dua Mua, the writer and star, and Perry Young, plays his father in the movie. Here's Sharon. We started Hmong in my scene because I had space and I'm kind of a natural host. And Dua was the social recruiter. So, <laughs> you know, Carl was like sending me texts. I found another one. It started out to be like five and then 10. And then now it's like over 50 people. And we have a baby now too. Like it's it's so amazing and beautiful, you know, to see the growth of uh, such this this small community. And then you and Brandon been in New York for such a long time. And you guys were kind of like, our mother and father hen and took us under your uh, arms and protect us. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of feedback I've heard um, from like New Yorkers, Hmong New Yorkers who came in was just that their parents were so relieved that there was a community here. And still randomly people are like, oh, I just Googled Hmong in New York and I found you. Can I say I was really impressed at the last um, uh, Hmong NYC gathering, I think where I met you, there was a woman visiting from Paris Oh, yeah. Dead, right. Like I just found you somehow on Facebook and here I am and I don't know anyone that she was having an amazing time. And she just felt kind of moved to be in a community that she didn't know. But it was a Hmong community she could drop into just for be, by being Hmong. That was quite amazing. Yeah. Pierre, you had an experience with that, too, because you came to an event or, or two and we kind of just like glommed on to you. <laughs> well, you know, at that same event, I met that baby. And and oh. you were so proud of that baby because it was the first Hmong baby born in New York City. Yeah, yeah. That baby's going to be famous. So it's a tight community and very um, warm and, and welcoming. And I'm, I have so much gratitude to be um, a part of it in some ways. For me, coming to New York City, knowing the fact that like I had two cousins that was going to also go to New York City, my parents are kind of like, okay, you have two cousins. You know, that was Andrew and that was Linda Mochapao. And so, like, we kind of had, like, this small three of us are like, oh, we're going to New York together. So I went to Marymount Manhattan College to study uh, communication psychology. And on the side, I was going to acting school, you know, uh, different studios in New York City. And from there, you know, it's such a hard road. I had this, like, moment of identity crisis of, like, not sharing that I was mom Because back then, it was so authentically you had to be Chinese, Japanese, Korean to play those roles. You know, so I think I would probably talk to Sharon a couple of times of like, oh, should I tell people that I'm Hmong? Should I be proud of it? You know, so that played a big factor of my acting career, even till the even today, where it's like you have to be authentically that Asian culture to play that role. So there was like this limitation of of playing other Asian culture that no one is writing about, you know, so the, no one's writing about the Hmong culture besides Grey's Anatomy. And eventually you get to Grand Torino, you know, so that was kind of like the opening part of okay, people is going to allow, people is going to allow me to start playing my ethnicity in movies. And after Grand Torino, it was pretty much a like, oh, there's nothing. And Asian was not really in at the moment. We didn't have a crazy rich Asian. And the the, the the beautiful part of about Grand Torino is the Hmong community. And we have those numbers to show that, you know, we have an audience that's watching our movie, our story. But before all that, you know, it, it was such a, a struggle. You and my parents today didn't know that, you know, there was like a period of time that I couldn't qualify to rent a apartment. And I was homeless for, you know probably like a year in New York City. I was sleeping, I was couch surfing. I was, you know, would, I would literally put my all my junk into a, like a duffel bag and put, thank God, like uh, there was a manager at Equinox that understand my situation and he would like, oh, you just quietly 
lock your stuff in the in the lockers and you know come work out and you know go do your thing. I was like working. I was I was working at a cafe at a restaurant. I was like mopping uh, theater studios and stuff like that, and like we crash there at nighttime and crash surfing, sleep on the bench. I got scared because I got scammed in Harlem. Uh, rent tried to rent a room and I got scammed in like like half of like my savings went to that. So it was a scary time being a young young expiring actor in New York City trying to make it and like every single thing you do did was kind of like like in the wrong in your mind or you're like you know like I, I, I screwed up and like how do I dig myself out of the hole when I put myself in those positions so. yeah it really broke my heart duo when I wrote uh, when I read about you um, you know being homeless because I mean, it's kind of a joke now that we say that we are among orphanage. Yeah. Because in New York, we uh, we bought a two-bedroom with the explicit understanding that, you know, we always have our door open. So, yeah, it's always been, you know, my hope to help guide young young people to a safe place and a safe position in New York and have a positive experience. You, you know this well, like being, being Hmong and being an underrepresented community – you have to prove people wrong. You have to prove people that you can make it. You could you could achieve that goal and dream no matter what, you know. And that that was my pride of like not sharing a lot about you know my earlier years in New York City. If I didn't live through that, I wouldn't be who I am today. If I didn't live, you know, having the support that you and Brandon and the Hmong NYC community to be there for me it, emotionally. You know, like I woun't be who I am today. There's more Hmong women in New York City than Hmong guys. So like I had this group of sisters that helped shape who I am. I really admire uh, the fact that you went from everything that we just heard to writing this screenplay and believing in it to such a degree that you got it over the finish line because it normally doesn't. I read a couple of first drafts of not just this story, but if you were the screenplays, that you had written. There were just some genre pieces, if I remember correctly. But this one was very personal. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, why did you write that? And how did you start? How, how did you get from writing it to the intervening years before you got done and how Perry came in and saved the day? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm editing that out. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it literally it was after Grand Trino. During college, my dad went through kidney renal failure and I went through a period of time of, you know, deciding if, you know, I wanted to give my kidney to my dad because of, you know, this obligation of being the youngest son in the Hmong community, you're obligated to take care of your parents. I did all the testing and stuff like that. My dad basically sat me down like, I don't want your kidney. You know, either you quit acting and come back home and give me your kidney or or I don't take your kid. Uh, I, I don't take your kidney, you know. So he gave me an ultimatum of you know quitting acting and going home and or or continue acting and not give my kidney to my dad, you know. So so from there it was just kind of like this idea of this film of like this struggle about obligation and you know I I, I could have written it in a POV of like a Chinese or a Korean or Vietnamese or any other Asian ethnicity that is more prominent marketable in in film industry so I mean of course you get Sharon and Brandon like you guys read different drafts of this this script from the different perspective of the involved the the evolution of the story of you know at the beginning you know it, it was about about uh, more so about father-son relationship and that eventually now ends up to being more about family dynamic, you know, and how the generational divide and gap between communication with the different generation of immigrants and refugees in America. And how about and when it came to getting the thing, um, you know, fi- putting together the financing and all of that stuff, which is a, you know, can be a, a puzzle uh, to solve. Uh, what 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 was that part portion of it like? And then when did uh, uh, Perry become involved? Yeah. So so the 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 harvest was greenlit, and 
unlit, greenlit, and unlit, greenlit, and unlit for so many years. So many years, you know, because again, it, it comes down to like different producers, even Asian producers wanted to change the ethnicity of the story. Really? Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, or, or turn it into, you know, a, 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 a the black film or a Latin film. And like when the Asian producers start coming in and read the script and love the script, but they want to change it into their POV, you know, which hence we don't have a lot of Hmong producers. So it's not going to be a Hmong film. And so, so from there, it's like, as a writer, you, you're like, I have something beautiful. Here. If I just continue to stick on my guns and even though it's like a 10, 11 years process, this film will get me. So, so literally before the pandemic, the film was greenlit with a different director, a different uh, producer, a different crew, and, you know, a different actor to play everybody besides me. And it was supposed to be, you know, shot in Minnesota and eventually everything fell apart and the pandemic kind of like put a pause on everything. I keep watching, like I was locked into my apartment, keep watching Joy Love Club like three, four times for some reason is kind of like the 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 ending of the film where Mina's character was like, you know, told by her mom. That bad crab. Only you tried to take it. Everybody else won best quality. You you're thinking different. Waverly took best quality crab. You took worst. Because you have best quality heart. That kind of like for me was like the waking call of me saying, you know what? I need to start saying yes to myself. I need to start saying I'm good enough. So like that kind of propelled me to kind of like talk to my my friend John, who's my producing partner, is like, we we're gonna make this film in like a month. I don't care how we do it, we're gonna make it. You know, so it's kind of like, everyone's like, no, you're not going to make this film in wintertime in Minnesota, you know, and then we're like, we're going to do it. And then eventually we got, we, we brought in Keely So, who's a Cambodian female uh, director. And she was like, well, I need two, three months pre-production. I was like, how about two? <laughs> and then she's like, let's, let's start, well, let's shoot it in California because like, you know, there is a mom, small mom community in Long Beach, California. I was like, Okay, we could do that. So kind of from there, it was and then the process of like start finding uh we went out to finding the the father, you know. We we kind of like I start throwing different names to to uh to Kaylee and eventually I, I saw Perry's name like Instagram and Facebook post popped out I was like and as I text Kaylee, I was like, What about Perry Young? And she's like, Yeah, reach out to him. If if he wants to do it, let's do it. And then I kind of DM Perry is like, hey, I have a square. You want to read it? See if you want to be part of it? So that kind of like brought Perry on board to uh, be, to play Chert in The Harvest. So, yeah, it's a funny moment. Facebook's a funny thing, right? You know, I have friends um, that, uh, you know, that I just crossed paths with, with on social media and I've admired Dua from, Dua from afar. Obviously, I saw the Grants Reno in the, the theater when it came out and loved the film. And, was always um, aware that it was one of his most successful films. You know, you hear Grant Reno, it just, everyone knows it. So when Dua reached out and asked if, um, if I want to read the script, I said, of course. And um, in reading it, just, you know, right away, I could feel the, um, the authenticity of a story, which is like gold right away. You know, the, the, the words just start glowing the page. And uh, page after page, you know, I couldn't put it down. It was like, wow, if I get to play Jur, this would be like one of the, the best roles I've ever been offered um, because it's such a um, a real person and the, a real person that we never get to see and a real person, an Asian father that is um, that we need to bring um, bring justice for, you know, because we don't see enough Asian fathers on television and film and a Western film. How did you feel about like getting immersed in the punk community and then getting ready for that role? Because that was it's such a 
yeah, transformation for you? Well, it's, it's, um, I do have a process about uh, approaching roles, but I wanted to make sure I did this script justice. And I really wanted to just hear the story. And because I know it's a real story, I knew it was a heartfelt story. And when, when we get something like that, it's rare. So I don't want to just, um, you know, take it for granted and think that I know what I'm doing and do, always do what I do. So I just read the script over and over, you know, and really kind of absorb the, the, the world that Dual is um, created or is, wants to reveal to us. Um, and it's quite, um, it's quite a real world with a lot of nuances. You know, we have the antagonist, protagonist, but they're all very rich uh, in their own world if we allow them to be. You know, I could have just played the character. Um, and I know that Dual written it as a, as, as a very stoic, mean, you know, angry um, father, but it's like, why is he that way? And it's not in the words why he is that way. It's not in the script, but we know why he is in that way. So I kind of had to do a little bit of a, you know, digging and mining of my own in, in terms of you know, looking into like our culture of patriarchy and things like that of like, um, and then the learning about the secret war, you know, I had to do a little digging into the Hmong history and why, why is he, why, why does he have that picture of the ad, uh, general in this, in his living room? What does that mean to him and why? So um, I had to bring out and, and working with Kaylee also was like, well, um, we have to make him a real human being. And, you know, so um, that's a that's a big order. That's a tall order for anyone to just try to come in and, and make take a character off the page and make him a real human being. But I wanted to really be and then, and then learn another language on top of that, you know, to have like to be authentic with another language is extremely difficult. I mean, I always think that, um, I mean, people think that acting could be easy and I think acting is difficult and is even, you know, a hundred times more difficult in another language. So, um, I just kind of focused on learning the words without any sort of character first, learning the words, learning the story, and then learning the language as well as I could and, and how to pronounce the words properly. And then I just let that sort of simmer and sort of, you know, like, um, yeah, germinate in me and without trying to enforce my other process of creating character. And eventually over like two weeks of just kind of reading the script over and over and learning the language and meeting uh, local Hmong people from Hmong NYC and doing my, my history um, research and watching a lot of YouTube videos of older guys speaking Hmong with an English accent. <laughs> I sort of feel, feel who Jerry was. I just sort of like feel him coming out. And, uh, you know, like, I don't, there's a, not a lot of that sort of angry patriarchy, patriarchal behavior in me. I've worked a lot, you know, very difficult to like make sure I don't have that or, or, or so to actually sort of explore that in me was and find out how I would perform those things was actually kind of challenging. And I didn't want to do, um, jur injustice. And I want to do Asian dads injustice by having sort of a flat anger or, um, you know, kind of a demeanor about him that's just, um, you know, one dimensional. I, I really needed people to know why he behaved that way. So it was a really rich, rich experience. I say one of the most valuable acting experiences I've ever had. Whenever we talk about the Hmong community, we always have to go to the Secret War, do so much backstory, you know, uh, telling. And you kind of, you guys kind of uh, went over that a bit, but there was a line that, you know, one of the elders said that kind of cut to the heart, but unfortunately felt a little uh, glossed over. It's just like, you're lucky to have a father to be angry with, you know, because a lot of people lost their fathers and there was a lot. And then just like this enormous loss that all this first generation or, you know, these elders are coming into. They're all here, you know, they're bringing a lot of trauma with them and loss. And um, and yeah, when you, when you start seeing it from their perspective and this like, huge sense of empathy for their experience then then there is like a little bit more understanding for how they you know want to preserve their family and preserve their identity i mean i, I think that's a beautiful part of it it's like with with the harvest and e even having conversation with the the vietnamese creatives in uh, in hollywood here it's like we want to immerse into the american uh culture like we're at the point of where the generation where we're not just about the warrior. We are American, you know, we came and assimilated and grew up in America and we want to have a new conversation about 
not a movie or story, not just talking about the Vietnam War or the Secret War, you know, or the Khmer. You know, we passed that. You know, and we want to start people to start saying that we are your brothers, we are your friends, and we we we, you know, we don't have to have. Uh, and hence, we don't have to have a Grand Trino film where it's like giving you the breakdown, a whole monologue about the secret, secret CIA. You know, we don't want to see every Southeast Asian story that's being made is about the Vietnam War. And that's how we connect with the American culture. You know, and we're at that point where we're like, we want to tell uh, a, a flawed character. We want to tell a a three-dimensional character. We want to tell stories that does matter and does resonate and does become a universal story that any culture can relate and not just because of a war, you know? Well, in the literary community, they call it the single story. You know, for any union, it's always like, oh, our parents suffered so much and that's why we have to work so hard. And it's like repeated over and over. And you know that, you know, everybody comes from strife and a background of struggle, but it can't be our only story. And that's why we offered so much more complexity. So I asked Dua, like, well, what, what's, what's the Hmong accent? And he goes, well, there's a, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of Hmong accents, you know? I was like, actually, you know, there's a lot of Chinese American accents too, right? So it's like, um, I was, you know, they're, depending on what part, where they're from, whether they're, you know, Laotian, uh, Laos uh, Hmong or Vietnamese Hmong or Chinese Hmong and all the, whether it's green or white Hmong and, and then where are they in America? It's like, it really is, a big, you know, diverse community. It's like not all Chinese are the same. Not, you know, when you think about just not all Asians are the same, it's bizarre. Like not all Hmong are the same, right? So it's like they, I was listening to a lot of Hmong older men speak and they have, I couldn't really dial in exactly what the accent was, but it was little like, you know, Southeast Asian, Chinese, you know, English. So if I just kind of get in there and admit to it, I think I'll be okay. <laughs> So um, it it was you know it was fun it was a really fun challenge. Um, I just wanted to ask you guys both quickly about like just being on a production that's like all Pan Asian. I mean that's really re- unique uh, to have like an Asian director have all all the, uh, most of the producers being Asian. Like to be on a full Asian set how how was that and how did that dynamic feed into the performances and how things went on set. It's great, you know, like, you know, I started acting 30 years ago and I couldn't do any TV and film. So I just stayed in theater and performance art in New York City, which was, you know, more welcoming of people of color. And then I saw the culture change. It was like, wow, if you stick around, around long enough, things do change. You know, I did, never thought I'd see the day where we'd have oh, more than 10 Asian-centered shows right now on television, right? It's amazing. And then, so when I stepped on a set of, the harvest and I met um, all the, the creatives, you know, and, and inherent makeup. I mean, our Asian and, you know, Hmong crew came out from Minnesota to apprentice. It's just like, it's, it's like I've, I've seen, I've lived long enough to see the change, you know, it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's inspiring. It makes this camaraderie. You want to do better. We're all committed to the story because it hasn't been told yet. So we, we go the extra mile, you know, um, because we want to make sure we can do more of this. I mean, Dua, you put them all together. How was the process of finding this and assembling this whole casting crew? You know, I think, I think for, for, for me, me and my producing partner, John, it was more the fact of, you know, giving the opportunity to a underrepresented community was a priority, no either even if it's like you know black, Latino, you know Hmong, uh, Vietnamese, Southeast Asian, but just also being redefining what diversity and inclusion mean, you know, and, and literally put hundred uh, percent into being inclusive, you know, and that's that that's the main thing for us, and I think for us was the beautiful thing is having choosing the right department heads to make sure they understand what the goal for this film and, and this production is. You know, the beautiful part of this this film is it's 80% woman and 90% Southeast Asian in front and back. And it, it, it's a span of Black, LBGTQ, you know, Latin, Southeast Asian, Laos, Thai, Cambodian, you know, Hmong. And it's just a beautiful hub that everyone came together to champion this film. 
Well, I just want to add a little bit to that. It's like, the, and you know, you didn't consider the commercial aspects of it while you were making in terms of marketing. It's just like, I'm just going to make the best film I could with the best tools and materials that I have. And I'm, I'm really inspired by that because it's going to resonate as an amazing thing forever, right? This, this, this film will just resonate as a beautiful thing that, that was not sort of, um, didn't have a sort of a capitalistic goal in a sense that we set up like a Hollywood film or TV episodic series that they know how to market it right away and we're going to come together. It's not, it's not put together by AI, right? It's a real story and you just made it, you know, in the, uh, the way you wanted to make it with who you wanted to make it. And it would just resonate as a beautiful thing because of that forever, I think. Through the, through the festival, film festival run, a lot of professors and, you know, School, colleges that came out uh, that came out and watched the film, like they're ready to try to try to start the conversation of, oh, how to, how can we screen this film at our college and start using as a a Asian American study you know tool, uh, start building a curriculum around this film to talk about generational gap or talk about you know the the unspoken war trauma that our fam our, our parents went through to start having those. Those conversation with their kids, their students that who are studying Asian American Asian studies, you know. So people think that I see the longevity of the harvest, no matter what ethnicity you are, it will resonate. It's going to be part of history. It's going to be a communication starter within families or within our internal struggles, you know. And can I just give a quick shout out to whoever did locations and the art department? Because another note that the group said was like, that whole set, the home, was so authentic. Like the foil behind the oven. And they're like, man, somebody really took notes because it just felt like a Hmong home. And it felt, you know, like even the food, all the bowls of soup. And to see this represented this way was really, really uh, exciting for all the Hmong kids that watched it. Because we were like, we never see that. And we never see it done correctly and artfully. And like the house itself just felt so familiar to me. I was just like... A lot of Hmong people lived in public housing and they were always just kind of run down and it felt like a museum piece. Uh, having uh, Christy Gray, who's our production designer, and having her do, uh, and, and she, she's she's a white woman, you know, and trying to have her do her work and having her ex- talk to different Hmong community in the Long Beach, you know, community of saying, what is the house? And having those, those open conversation with me and you know, some of the Hmong crew to be like, is this authentic? We always talk about representation and like even visual representation is so significant. It was a really, really um, exciting element for our group to watch and be like, oh. The funny thing about uh, when, we went, when we take the harvest to go through the film festival circuit, it's like a lot of people will watch the movie and uh, like emotionally you know, it's heartfelt, emotional cry or laughing in the whole nine yards about the film. And it, it, something, half of them would be like, I'm trying to make sense of this film. Like, I've seen it before. You know, like all these elements, I've seen it before. Like, it's been done. And they go back and I would get a message of like, you know what? I lived it. <laughs> well, that's a beautiful part of it. It's like, I thought I've seen this film you know, done many a time, but I came back and I was like, oh my God, this was a slice of my life. It, it, for me, the hardest screening for me was in Minnesota because my parents are there. And it was like this whole long dragging conversation of like with my sibling, like, should mom and dad see this film? Like, like there's a lot that's going to be going on. And I literally... You know, had this hard heart with Kaylee, the director, and she and she's just like, eventually they're gonna see it. Just have them see, it, you know. So my parents came out and watched the film, and surprising, they loved it. Surprising, they were crying the whole time. Oh, and 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 John, my producing partner, was sitting like a seat ahead of them, and he was hearing like my dad was just bawling the whole time of like, so so it's like. If, if that generation watched this film and could resonate with them, even though my parents is like halfly based on them, you know, it's a beautiful thing, you know, so. Can, can I also say that I love the other actors so much? I mean, I love, 
I loved working with them. They were so good. And, you know, it was such a great experience on screen that we didn't actually have to talk too much about where, where they're coming from, what are our motivations for the saying this. It's just all there. You know what I mean? We know the history is in us, you know, and, uh, you know, they say that 90% of the movie is done if you cast the right people. Everyone, everyone who came on board as an actor came prepared to on screen bounce things with Perry and, you know, capture those moments, those moments that aren't on the script. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those, if you go, if you go back and watch it, you'd be like, oh, I missed that part. Uh, like Perry says, casting from a producer standpoint, casting the right cast to come and play these different roles within the film and bring that or- organic that to make it real life, you know? And one of those interesting things about the Hmong community, like you don't talk about dynamics, you know, you don't talk about family things uh, very much. So like, it, it's interesting because it does feel like this is um, aspirational, but also with a family dynamic that is changing so much in this community, they're like, yeah, I think this is what we are doing. This is what the Hmong families are starting to do because they're starting to understand that there's a lot more going on. Those moments, it's not just Hmong moments. It's, it's also, you know, we and Perry talk like, you know, those are moments that, you lived with your brother. Yeah, I was looking at uh, some of my friends who had the very um, archetypal patriarchy, patriarchal Chinese father who was Confucianist based. So you, every the siblings or the children have to listen to the father, right? The father is the king of the house, you know, and anything he says goes goes. And I was lucky to have sort of the a fun father, you know, that was just you know, you know, he liked his, he loved living and enjoyed making things and singing and you know he, he was just a fun guy so i I, would, I think i had the rare fa- chinese father you know but i just had to look at um some of my friends fathers when i went to their home and i was like oh my god you know your your dad is so like whoa he's he's a tough one huh you know and he goes what you know what well, that's all chinese fathers you know i'm like no i don't know you know so I just had to think about their fathers and go, yeah, that's right. You know, what they say goes and they don't, they don't talk much. They're just sitting in a living room, smoking a cigarette, you know, and people tiptoe around them, you know. And uh, so, you know, the, those are real people, you know. So, but my goal is, is um, with, with Jer, the father in, in The Harpist, was to ask why they're like that. I think one of the challenges of bringing a character like that to the screen is because they are so stoic and so closed up. And all those things that actors don't naturally want to do, you know, like don't show anything, <laughs> be, you know, be all locked up. And there's a moment, a particular moment for me, and I won't say when it is, where uh, where your character, for all of his stoicism and uptightness and everything, there's a moment in there, and you kind of want to, as a viewer, it's very tempting and natural to kind of like to hate him to be frustrated with him um and there's a moment in there and it's, it's this is the the magic of great acting is that I don't, know what, I don't know what you did but there's a couple of moments in there where i don't know you could watch it a hundred times i'm not sure what you did but there's a moment where there's this crack just sort of opens up and you see like oh this guy <laughs> he's been through so much and look what it's done to him you know and he doesn't know how to be different you know and he's frustrated with himself and he's but he's locked into this way of being and but suddenly all the sympathy suddenly like poured you know towards this character it was a great great moment like the look on your face and what you were conveying and just in terms of feeling shut out from your own family Really well, that's the beauty of the great direction and the space and the writing is that there's space, right? There's just, just like he walks by and looks in, right? That's that's just, that's all the script says. He walks by and looks in and sees his family and walks off. Like that's a playground for an actor. You know, like we know what he's feeling and what the script is implying, but how I can pl- how I play that is you know it's endless and. um uh, Brandon, if you ask me how did I play that moment, I would say, I don't know. You know, it's just because that moment presented itself. And that's how I felt it at that moment when I saw them and th- that the camera lens caught something that I wasn't even aware of, maybe, you know, because so I'm, and that's the incredible magical part of 
um, filmmaking and making art, as you all know, as in theater and acting and music. And it's like, there's magic. And we sometimes we don't know how that happened. And the other beautiful thing is like, because we were in the film and we were such on a tight schedule, 18, mm. roughly 18 day shoot. And half of these shoots are like one or two takes. Mm-hmm. So, so like, again, yeah, I mean, like, I'd work like that with, like, Clint Eastwood, you know? And, like, he captures so many moments of me where it's just, like, organic and, like, it, or, like, just dumb. But the thing with this film is having having actors that immerse into this this universe mm-hmm. completely and prepare to, to, to have those moments eternally so the camera can capture. And also having a director that see those moments and be like, we can move on. Mm-hmm. And that's the gift. That's such a gift to an actor is to be able to um, to play like that. And, you know, it's like we do have to study in order to play, you know. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's an incredible process. But I would say that um, the script called um, for really to be prepared, right? It called for me to, like, not screw up this really incredible opportunity. So I better be prepared. I mean, you better. <laughs> That was, was that that was the direction for me? Don't screw it. <laughs> yeah, you better be prepared and get that <laughs> right. No, I mean, I mean, also, also, like with with writing the script, like I wrote it, I wrote it, knowing that I'm an actor, right? You write the script so you allow the actor to come and collaborate with you, allowing the actor to show more than what is being told. If you are writing, if you're writing, I think you should also take an acting class and understand how acting actors process things, and also give them the space to show what they can bring and collaborate to the words on the page. You know, that's why uh, the writers have to trust their artists. Anson, you once had a great segment idea for the show that whenever we interviewed actors you wanted to ask a question of all of them we usually forget but i remember this time it was a segment called scroll to the bottom yeah uh well when you when you work with and interact with a lot of actors over a period of time you start to learn that that um that little credit at the bottom of their imdb page there's usually a great story behind that credit (laughs) We did this with Doug Jones, I believe. I can't remember the name of that movie, but it was a great story he had about him and Randy Quaid, almost killing Randy Quaid. Yeah, was it called uh, Bug Smasher? Oh, who cares? We really should We really should turn this into an, an ongoing segment. I asked Perry about his. I looked at his IMDb page, and it wasn't a movie credit. I looked down to the bottom of his page and found in the trivia section that he plays the shakuhachi flute and read that in 2012 he was a guest soloist with Vangelis. Wow. On stage with Vangelis. Wow. So I asked him about that. When I started acting in theater and, um, you know, I couldn't get any roles in film. I tried. So um, on theater, while I was doing theater, I met a Japanese musician on, on an experimental theater festival at La Mama who was doing, uh, I'm sorry, experimental theater opera at La Mama playing the shakuhachi and it just kind of changed my life. So I ended up going to Japan to study shakuhachi under a master, um, I got a grant uh, to do that, and then uh, and then I had a child coming, you know, uh, at that same time, and then I dropped out of acting because I just couldn't live off a of theater, and there was no film or TV like now, and so I that learning the craft of shakuhachi became an actual business that you know I became the only American trained uh, a, a trained American that was trained in Japan to make and repair this flute, so I stayed home. I dropped out of acting to sort of be the stay-at-home dad. And then I saw the the, the world change. You know, uh, Better Luck Tomorrow came about. Daniel Day Kim was on Lost. Um, you know, streaming came about Netflix, and I started to see Asian American content. And, you know, so about 10 years had passed, and I, and I got itchy. I was like, I got to get back on stage. I got to do something. And um, somebody told me that the Carrie Diaries was auditioning a Shakuhachi player for some reason. I was like, oh my God, I should go audition. I had no experience for television and film. And uh, I, I answered the ad. They cast me. So I, I ended up going on set and, uh, you know, 
shooting a sort of a special background, a special talent. And then right from that, I went, oh, you know, I got all this money for like one day of work, you know, more than you would do in like, you know, three months of a play. And I went, you know, I think I want to do this for a while. And so I saw the community, the world changed. And then I got cast in the, in the, the Nick and that changed my life. Um, and so it was just like, I stayed around, I got, I you know, got sidetracked with the shakuhachi, but I was really in love with the bamboo flute. And I would have been happy, you know, continue doing it. And I still actually do do it and repair and have a little business when I'm, you know, when I have time. Um, but uh, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have had that sort of side gig that I was able to do and love and make money. Because a lot of actors, you know, as you all know, can't really survive off the craft of acting. So, um, but I feel very fortunate. Yes. So, and, that, and then somebody from that gig in Doha, um, just out of the blue, found my website and said, hey, there's a concert. We're opening this cultural festival in Qatar, Doha, with Evangelis. You know, he, he's a composer for Chariots of Fire, Blade Runner. And I went, oh, my God. You know, next thing you know, less than 24 hours later, I'm in the Middle East playing my flute on stage with Evangelis, uh, uh, improvising, you know, with uh, 10 other world musicians to open the show. There's African drummer, Chinese Urhu, um, uh, sitar player uh, from India. So it was like a world music ensemble that we improvised to open the show. You know, it was an amazing moment in my life. That's awesome. That's so, that's so, that's so cool. Was that a shakuhachi flute you were, that you briefly are seeing playing in the No, heart? it's a no. monk flute, right? That Kaylee said, hey, since you play the flute, why don't we bring in the monk flute? And that could sort of be a little backstory we don't know about. I imagine you, like with most musicians, if you play one thing, you probably like to, you're curious, like to try out other instruments. I'm, I'm going to butcher the name. I've tried to, it's the one mo- word in Hmong, well, one of many words in Hmong I can't attempt. I just destroy every time. The Hmong instrument, okay. say it for me, Sharon, the thing? Yeah, the thing. It's the bamboo uh, reed instrument that is larger and is played at funerals. And it's it's very diff- difficult wind instrument to play. It's that one that's long, right? And has sort of like a like a little through a tube and there's a huge thing coming out of it. I saw it like it's a thing that Jerry watches on TV. There's a little performance of it, yeah. I don't know where you would get a hold of one of those. Um but with the simple flute, I think there was some maker in Long Beach that actually made them among maker. So they sent me a few of those to try, and it was difficult. It was a reed, a very different kind of flute that I play. And um, I, one thing really it fascinated me was that the, it wasn't musical notation, like a musical uh, Western music. We have the staff and dots on paper, and in shakuhachi we have the Chinese, the Japanese characters, and they each represent a whole. But with that flute, it was a poem. So the notes, each word is a is a each note is a a word. And they speak the poem into the flute. And that was just amazing to, to learn. Because I didn't know we actually have like just a regular long flute in the long, long flute. You know, Kayla's like, oh, we need to have Harry play uh, a, a monk, uh, monk, monk flute in this scene. I was like, so you're going to have him sit down and playing the phone, the big thing in one. And I was like, that will look weird. <laughs> my life told me it was like no just like the monk flu I was like well, in my mind growing up all we saw was you know the Laos the Laos version of it and the Hmong with like the big almost banjo-ish you know mm-hmm. all we saw is that not so much as just the, the regular flute you mm-hmm. know so and then she she showed me and covers like oh okay <laughs> it would have been weirder if I played that so we weird to play the whole thing thing in the scene. So it would have been weird if I played that instrument off traditionally because they dance with it also. Right. So yeah, exactly. So it was like a weird debate between me and the director. So <laughs> hey, I would have went for it though, Dua. I would have went for it. <laughs> I mean, one, I would have learned to dance. Honestly, it is uh, a bit of acrobatics too because they roll with it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's quite the challenge if you ever want to. You know, get into the physicality of music. What's next for you, Dua? Um, the next for me is, you know, it's just kind of 
getting this film sold and dive into a more commercial film than an indie film. We won't dive into a horror film next. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not as famous as Perry Young, who's going to be young, who's, who's warrior is going to come out. Uh, and you know, and, uh, June 27, June 29, 29. And, uh, Perry, besides warriors, do you have other projects that you work on? Well, I'm going to try to get into Doyle's commercial film that he's going to be working on soon. Uh, let's see. I have a reading, a stage reading for a Broadway, which is kind of huge. They don't, I don't normally do Broadway, but they kind of found me and said, hey, are you interested in reading this role? It's actually is for the Farewell My Concubine that's coming to Broadway. Uh, it's just for a reading for them to still workshop the scripts. So um, I'm not a singer, so they probably won't cast me. Um, that's one thing, but also like I'm gonna make my first little film, and it's inspired by Dua, you know. But it's my music group, Judo Club, and uh, we wrote a song. The writer, the guitar player, Billy Asai, wrote a song called "Stop Asian Hate," and we have a little film we want to shoot that makes it sort of like a film slash music video. So we're shooting that next week in New York City, and we're gonna do a fundraiser, a GoFundMe fundraiser, to sort of raise funds to be able to to finish it, make it, and finish it. So I'm excited about kind of like, you know, telling our story, right? Like I was telling other people that, you know, I'm very inspired by Dua because you just have to say this, you know, no one else is going to say, say this. No one else is going to tell this story, but, but me. So I'm going to do it, you know, and that's, you know, with the pandemic and all the violence and hate towards our community recently, it's like, no one else is going to tell this story. So, so, you know, I'm going to do it right now. Amazing, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Special thanks to our guest, Duomua and Perry Young, and of course, to Sharon Her for conducting the interview. Our theme music was written and performed by Jonathan Myberg. Till next time... Have a great time.